and we had an overwhelming demand for a full song of a synanthropic organism. So we we responded. You are listening to So welcome back to the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Um, I'm sitting here, co-host Billy Brown, with not one musician like I usually am with Tony, but now we got two. Hello. Who are you? I'm Bull Gervaisi. I'm sorry, I was really uncomfortable with you referring to me as a musician. <laughs> Bull might be as well. <laughs> I'm wildly uncomfortable. He just kind of like held his hands roughly in the All right. right well, well, well. Two. places of his base. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Bull has a distinguished music career before Rambo. What was what did you do before Rambo? Uh, I played in a few other bands as well that did quite a bit of recording and touring. Bull was like a legend before he joined the band, and everybody couldn't believe it when he joined Rambo. Like seriously, like they're like, how the hell did you get Bull to join Rambo? But Tony and I did our most extensive touring together. Yeah. Okay. So I'll say I'm here with two rock stars. A little closer. Former, former rock stars. Yeah. Former rock stars. Rock stars who moved on to other lifestyles. Indeed. Yeah. Um, but that's the thing. We were in a band that it's the kind of stuff where you got to get out of your system. Like, I don't mean like if it was a phase. It's like our kind of a punk band is like you have these feelings that you need to work through and the band was kind of like therapy. And while we had enough musical talents to put together a pretty damn good band, um, we weren't going to make a career out of it. And the other interests in our lives that made us the weirdos in the first place that made us angry at society and had to work through these demons via musical therapy, we had to turn our attention to those passions. It was also really fun. Yes. It made... Me aware of Tony because I first became aware of Tony through your bandmate Andy. Yes. Who then I was dating a woman who was friends with my then girlfriend and now ex-wife. Um, yeah, complicated chain here. Um, <laughs> in any case, Andy, at like it was like twelve years ago or eleven years ago, showed me a video of Tony birding in Hong Kong, and then I know who to- I knew who Tony was when he popped up as a Vista member under a Vista project in my portfolio. So I'll start with some introductory matter that we always include. First off, if you like this podcast, and if you're listening to it, we bet this isn't your first time, and if you're a repeat listener, you probably like us. So tell all your friends about it. Um, You can use like non-technology and just tell them verbally. Um, You could email your friends about it. You could post it on Facebook. You could tweet all about it. You could snap about it. Anything you want. Just get the word out about how much you love this podcast if you're digging it. Um, so please share us as much as possible. Like us on Stitcher and iTunes. Like, we are all resolving right now to, like, our favorite podcasts. If you want to contribute to the podcast, um, either in, like, the little... Wildlife play At the ends of the episodes, um, or uh, with something longer and more substantive, we're happy to take a pitch. Like, if you want to, like, suggest a longer idea... Um, or if you want to go out, if you're doing like a, your own your own your own research, your own urban wildlife education or conservation project, and you want to go out and like record of what you're doing and talk about it a little bit, we're fine. We, we love that kind of thing. So also, if you live in Australia, in 
from Sydney to the Cape York Peninsula and you want to show me in person your cool urban wildlife, please get in touch because I will be there in December. Tony's doing a tour of Queensland, basically. I'm going to go into Sydney and visit my, with my friend Sydney and then we're flying up to Cairns and we're going to drive up from Cairns to the, to the Cape York Peninsula. So if you want to record something for the wildlife bling or um, you know you can try for something longer um, you can also you can record it on your phone or on your whatever kind of recorder you got and then either email it to us or if it's too big for that just drop us an email and we can arrange how to get the file transferred we're going to start the episode with an original piece of music this has been requested this is by demand the public has demanded and we listen to the public see this is what I'm saying we don't get as much feedback as we would like, but when we do, we respond. And we had an overwhelming demand for a full song of a synanthropic organism. So we we responded. So I recruited three of the greatest musicians that I know. Matt Haley on keyboards. Patrick Forrest on drums. And Liam Wilson on bass. To give you the full version of synanthropic organism. Dig. Coyotes in the garbage, flies in my drain, mites in my lashes that give me no pain. Flora in my belly, bugs in my guts, squirrels in my eaves, hiding their nuts. Synanthropic organ in sound. Synanthropic organism. Synanthropic organism. Synanthropic organism. Rats in the subway, pigeons on the ledge, geckos in a crevice, hogs of the hedge, swifts in the chimney on top of my house. Cats on the inside, hunt that mouse. Synanthropic organism. Synanthropic organism. Synanthropic organism. Synanthropic organism. We are here with our retired rock stars. Um, Tony and Bull. Um, yeah, so Bull was the bass player of the band I was in called Rambo. And Bull's also my BFF, along with Andy Wheeler, who's a guitar player. So, which is like, whenever I feel like, I'm like, what the hell am I up to? What the hell am I doing? Am I, am I really screwing up? And I think about the fact that Bull and Andy are still my best friends, and they saw me at my absolute worst behavior. We had multiple drummers, and I love those guys too. We had a, That's such a, a stereotype, though. <laughs> well, we actually, Bull is our second bass player. Did they, did yeah. they spontaneously combust? No. Yeah, it's like Spinal Tap. Yeah. The, the, the final uh, lineup Rambo was the definitive one. Okay. Because Rambo started out as a joke band. I, what do I know? And, right. and, and, uh, and when we you know, made a record and people liked it and, really, and wanted us to tour, two of the members of the band were like, well, we didn't sign off for this because we thought this was a joke band. So... They uh, weren't able to tour, and we got Bull to join, and he stayed 
with us every, and then we we're like, okay, we're we're like we're not going to be a band without Bull. And then we would then we had two other drummers. The last drummer, Dave, we were also like, well, we won't be a band without Dave. Okay, so he's stuck. And I still love those guys. I mean, you know, I love every 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 member of the band. I'm still very good friends with. But you, 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 Andy, and Bull are the remaining nucleus of the. Right. Whatever. I mean, Dave too. And Dave. Yeah. So I mean, like, but like Bull and Andy and I like hang out all the time. In fact, like Andy moved to Los Angeles, and I'm not even joking. When like, for like the first like two years, when Andy would come and visit, if Bull and Andy and I were together, and like when we would say goodbye to Andy, like I would cry, like specifically to like the fact that the three of us were together, like just like put me over the edge. You know, like, like saying goodbye to him, you know, it's like, it was crazy. Like, you know, like, so when you were, you know, you were birding, of course, when you were touring. And so you're going to hear more about this in the interviews. Um, first, our discussion, uh, we have two discussions on this episode. I found out that I am a much better interviewer than it, I'm much better interviewee than an interviewer. So the fr- we brought in Liam Wilson, who is the bass player of the Dillinger Escape Plan, um, and he's a very old friend of mine as well. And, and you'll know his work from our basically yeah. every bit of music you hear in this podcast. Yeah, whenever you hear like, he did, he's a bass player <laughs> on a theme song. And then when you hear like really weird, like when I say something you know, weird, you know, unholy trio. But we actually go over that when he's when he's on the podcast. When you, yeah, in, 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 okay, good point. So he yeah, so that's Liam, and so he interviews me about my travels, you know, in Rambo. Which I probably should have had Bull there in the first place, but Bull's very, very busy. So sometimes he might not even, when we did it, he might have not even been here for that matter. Well, Bull's here now. Yes. And then, so the other interview we're going to do is with Jonathan Meberg from the band Shearwater, which, if you're into birds, you know, is a type of bird, a type of seabird, basically mini albatrosses or like quarter sized albatrosses. And, um, he is a guitar player and singer, basically the the main you know songwriter of Span Shearwater, um, and he studied Strider to Caracaras and Falkland Islands. So I just thought it'd be kind of cool to like interview people who are into music and also wildlife. You know, this guy because you know that's, who, that's what I was. was Liam is a bit is a bull is, and then uh, and I think it's it's a good message that if you're out there. Um, in case you are out there listening to this podcast, listeners, if you are a musician who, when you tour, whether that's around your home country or in other countries, um, if you take time when you're out there uh, and you're birding, maybe you're like a herper and you're flipping some rocks or some boards while you're out there too. Maybe you're really into butterflies and like you're checking out what you don't get to see at home. Um, whatever your thing, uh, if you are a naturalist musician and you're out there touring and checking stuff out, um, we would just love it so much if you could record a little bit from some from some faraway city for you. Um, and so with that, here we go with the interviews. Um, is the shower, the singer guy still around? Could, could you put me on the phone with him? I, I invited you to go bird watching the next day, but you weren't available. You had a, you were like driving through New York or something that night. Oh yeah, it's. I mean, on tour, it's really funny. I mean, you can never, you, you can hardly ever do anything besides just play shows because you're always on to the next town. I guess, yeah, I was in a band, too. I was in a, you know, Rambo, a anarchist punk band. So I, I guess we had a different kind of touring schedule, you know, where we, we actually did do, get to do a lot of stuff. Um, but I guess, like, we, you know, we didn't have to worry about sound checks and 
you know, counting out merch and all that stuff. We were just like, we were like, let's have the show. And we're like, all right, we'll see you then, you know. Even in Europe, they would get really mad at us because they always wanted to have these huge, long sound checks. And we're like, no, we'll, we'll, you know, we won't actually see what we're playing, so. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's, that's, in a lot of ways, I think that's probably the, the smartest thing you could do. But also, you know how much time you actually need for a sound check and stuff. After a while, especially if you're using a, uh, you know, fairly standard setup, it's like you don't really need to check your drums for an hour. Yeah, yeah, it, it is it is the case. And, and I talked to you, you told me you studied Stryer to Caracara in the Falklands. That's right. Um, Billy usually handled the Google when I was working for R5 Production, but I wasn't actually working on the show they played, and I uh, and I tried to get him to go bird watching, um, and then uh, he, was, he was unavailable. So, I guess... Being on tour means you're pretty much unavailable. <laughs> That's the problem with yeah. it. It's uh, uh, people say, "Oh, can you hang around for the next day?" And it's like, "Nope, I will be eight hours away from here tomorrow." <laughs> yeah. So do you know? Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the Swirlies, right? Um, only by name. Right. So they're like kind of shoegazy out of Boston, Tang Records. Um, uh-huh. My really good buddy. Um, is their bass player, um, and there's he's he's got his PhD, so he's black on night herons, um, and um, he would tell me that he would, I guess that you know they would still have kind of like sound checks and the whole like you know a little bit step up of the production that you know anarchist punk band like mine would have, um, maybe probably more similar to what you guys do was, but he would just drive the band overnight and then get out and go birding, and like well everybody oh my God. in the van. And get back in and drink it to the next show. Well, as long as you don't need sleep, that can really work. Yeah. Um, so, all right. I want to definitely wanna get into what you see while you're on tour, but I'd love to, like, um, if you could just talk about how you got into nature and, um, I mean, you named your band after a bird and so many of your songs, like Rook and, you know, I mean, there's so many the narrative of birds weave through your music. If you could just give us a little background on, you know, your your interest in nature and then kind of how you started the band and, you know, was able to name it Sure, I think, from what I can gather, it's pretty much, you're like the main songwriter, right? Yeah, I'm the, you know, I'm the only remaining member from <laughs> from when we started it. It's because I can't quit, you know, when I quit the band's it's over. Kind of like, so it's like the cure in the sense we're like, it's really a solo act with a with you know the, a name rather than well, your name. Yeah, I wouldn't describe it as a solo act though because I can't do this all by myself. Like I have to be working with other people. Um, it's just that that the who that group of people is uh, changes over time. But on um, the most recent record, for instance, um, Howard Draper played on the record. Who was uh, he was in the band back in the Rook and Palisanto days, and um, and then I've got several other people I've been working with for a number of years on there as well. So it's, it doesn't change over every time. It's just sort of you end up with a bullpen of, of people that you work with over the years. I can't think of any other right. way to keep a band going for, you know, almost 15 years. Yeah, it's cool when you, you still have good times with everybody. In our, in our band, uh, you know, we, we part ways with a bass player amicably. And it was great because when our bass player got – uh, typhoid from our Asian tour, and we had to play a festival. Oh <laughs> we my god! Yeah. <laughs> we were able to get back. Well, you know, when you first start a band and you're 
like in your late teens or early twenties, and it's uh, it's it's like kids building a treehouse, you know, and it's it's all for one and one for all, and you're going to be in this till you die. Or but uh, but a few years later, life starts to look kind of different, and uh, especially if the band's not making lots of money or anything like that. Um, yeah. Different different things tend to pull people in different directions. I'm just kind of amazed and, and grateful that I get to still do this. I never would have thought it would have lasted this long. Yeah, so, man, okay, there's so many questions to lead to, but I guess for our, I mean, our listeners, we they should know a little bit more about your background, because especially, they're starting to, you know, scratch from you as a, you know, as an ornithologist and as a, you know, maybe perhaps as a musician, too, so um, well, I, I don't want I to should... go to the next. I should say that, that describing me as an ornithologist I don't think is exactly right. Um, I, I decided not to uh, pursue my Ph.D. in biology. If I, if I were Dr. Myberg, I think I'd feel better about calling myself an ornithologist. On the other hand, uh, I've spent more time thinking about and studying this one group of birds, the caracaras, than just about anybody else. <laughs> so it's, uh, I can, in the world of caracaras, I can hang just sort of by default. Um, but uh, I, I made a conscious choice to to not become a professional academic um, some years ago, and I was trying to be a musician and, and a graduate student at the same time. And it took me six years to get through a two-year degree, and then I had to really make the the choice about whether to to go all in with. Well, most uh, people don't go to academia or not. For a master's no. <laughs> I should explain why I was in the Falklands or how I ended up being attracted to that place because that is kind of a it's not the first place you think of the Malvinas yeah if you're from Argentina it's the Malvinas um, if you're from most of the rest of the world it's the Falklands but uh, the reason I ended up there is that after I graduated from college, I went to a little school in Tennessee called the University of the South, which is a tiny sort of liberal arts college up on a mountain. And uh, one of the features of that school is that they participate in a program called the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship, which is a really crazy grant that's awarded to about 50 students a year uh, to pursue projects that they design themselves in one or more non-U.S. countries. And the projects can be anything. Okay, um, this is Billy. I want to interrupt really fast to yeah. say I applied for but did not get one of those, so I know exactly what you're talking about, and they're really awesome. One of my friends got one um, and had a hell of a year after college. Oh, cool. When when was that? So it been, um, so we graduated in 99, so my friend Carl would have done it in the year 2000 and oh, studied okay. the Armenian diaspora. Exactly that kind of project, yeah. That's, the projects yeah. tend to be something that's going to really push you out into a number of different places in the world, um, but they have to be uh, places that you haven't gone before. So you're sort of, by definition, uh, wandering into a place in which you have no expertise and, uh, you know, you have nothing but interest, which is hard to sustain for a year when you're uh, when you're 22 years old and have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> but in my case, the project that I proposed was a study of community life at the ends of the earth. I'd grown up entirely in the southeastern U.S. and never really been outside of it. And I was just very curious about uh, remote parts of the world. Uh, so I looked at a map and did a little research and found some of the places that seemed as far flung as I could as I could find, and I went to them. And one of the places that I ended up going was the Falklands. But when I went there, 
I wasn't especially interested in birds. I mean, I, I I liked birds. I liked wildlife. I liked being outdoors, but it didn't go much further than that. Um, but in the Falklands, it's hard not to notice the birds because they're so odd and interesting. There's not many different species, but the ones that there are are fascinating. You know, they have a flightless duck, for instance, and they have uh, penguins and albatrosses and uh, these strange birds of prey um, called striated caracaras that live in the Falklands and on some really remote islands off Tierra del Fuego, and that's it. And just by chance, I ended up staying in a boarding house with a scientist from England named Robin Woods who was about to do a survey of these striated caracaras in the outermost islands of the Falklands. And I wanted to see that place, so I just tried to persuade him that uh, he needed an assistant, and eventually I wore him down, and he decided to take me on. So for seven weeks, I worked as Robin's assistant on this survey of the outer islands of the Falklands, looking for nests and breeding pairs of striated caracaras. And that experience really blew my mind. There are parts of the Falklands that... uh, I should explain that the Falklands are an archipelago of 780 islands. Most of them are very tiny, but that's actually saved them because, uh, you know, people ran sheep on the on the biggest ones and um, uh, also did a little other small-scale farming, but sheep were the big agricultural, you know, wool was a big agricultural product. But some of the islands were so small um, that it, it really wasn't worth it to them to, to do anything with them. So they have remained in more or less a state of nature. There's no mammalian predators. There's no... Um, uh, introduced tests. This, it, you know, you can walk onto some of these islands, and it's like going back fifteen thousand years. And almost their entire vertebrate fauna is birds. Everything from the the penguins and the uh, burrowing petrels uh, to a weird little uh, wren that's uh, it's not flightless, but it spends most of its time running around on the ground on the, the boulder beaches. And then there are some strange birds that. Uh, think of as more almost like Andean birds from South America, like uh, uh, Synclodes uh, and, uh, I mean, the long-tailed meadowlark and the thrush. and the, You know, the avian fauna is South American in general, uh, but some of the species have sort of diverged within the Falklands and become endemic. But the caracaras are just a fascinating animal full stop. They're a bird of prey, but they're sort of like if you imagine building a crow on a falcon chassis. Like they are intelligent, they're curious, they're social, um, and when you go to their islands, they come right up to you. <laughs> they used to have this incredible curiosity about anything that they haven't seen before, and they'll look you right in the eye uh, and try to go through your bag, and they're just so unusual uh, that I felt this strong sort of attraction to them immediately uh, that has stayed with me ever since, and actually right now I'm Are they in writing settlements or do you have to only see them in the rural areas? Well, I mean, there's one big town, Stanley, and that's, you know, about 2,500 people, and uh, then there are a few little farm settlements that dotted around the islands uh, with only, you know, several hundred people, tops all told. Uh, and there are a few settlements where the characters do come in and they're sort of tolerated, uh, like on Carcass Island, for instance, the you know, the, uh, Lorraine McGill, who lives there, feeds them her kitchen scraps, and there's always a group of them hanging around the house. Uh, 
in other places, they've been uh, not so fortunate in their encounters with people. For uh, for a while, there was even a bounty on them uh, because of the perception that they were a threat to sheep. And so people shot the living daylights out of them for a long time, up until uh, you know, up until the 80s, I would say. But I think attitudes are starting to change about them. And luckily for them, uh, they still you know lived in, and bred in these islands where there weren't people. Uh, a lot of the time, so they were safe, kind of protected by default. I've not seen. I've only seen I think what, three species of caracara. And, Which uh, ones have you seen? Uh, well, well, they split. I mean, it's kind of cheating. Split northern and southern, you know, crest of caracara. So I oh, you're gonna you're gonna spring that one on me, okay? You gonna? I'm gonna what? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. No, the the northern and southern crest of caracara are uh, for listeners who don't know, they look nearly identical. Uh, the southern yeah. ones are bigger, and their plumage is just a little bit different. But they they're divided more or less at the Amazon. So there's one that runs north of the Amazon, and one that goes south all the way down. Uh, not even just to Tierra del Fuego, not even just to Cape Horn, but they've actually been seen on Diego uh, Ramirez, the southernmost point of land of the South American continent. Wow. And the the northern species uh, is seems to be on the move right now, which I really interested in. Uh, there's a there's this relic population of them in Florida, which seems to be left over from the, the Pleistocene. But then there's uh, the Central American population has just been steadily moving north. Uh, they're, they've always been in southern Texas, but now they're fairly common in northern Texas. And they're starting to be seen all over the place. There have been sightings of them in Washington State, in Vancouver, in Montana, and last year in New York, we actually had the very first crested caracara sighting at Bear Mountain State Park. Yeah, there's, there's a, I, I chased them in Jersey, not seen them, but I've seen them. I've seen them in you know Florida and Texas and, and you know Belize, and but yeah, they're awesome and they're, they're very comfortable in uh in right in the, you know not necessarily right in cities, but they're really comfortable in like agricultural areas like right right near. And everything. You'll see them flying yeah, they've, they've been, you know, they've been associated with, um, you know, farming settlements in in South America for quite a long time. Uh, the in the book that I'm writing right now, there's a, a a major character in it is a writer named William Henry Hudson, and he grew up in Argentina on a farm in the 1870s, and they were, a, you know, a common feature of life there, uh, just like they are actually in the Falklands around farms. It's interesting actually with the crested they. Uh, that's, that's where you see them. Um, when you go out to the uh, to the albatross colonies and things, there might be one or two cresteds around, but there'll be 50 striatids. You know, the, the striatids really own that that habitat. But the cresteds have done very well around people, and they've done so for for quite a long time. That you people have them right in you know cities, some places. I just can't think offhand if I can remember seeing them, you know, right in a, a city or whatever, because they seem to be so well, comfortable but- around people. They like garbage dumps and sewage ponds and things like that. You'll see them there. Uh, there was in Austin. There were some, not you know, just a couple miles from downtown. There was a pair along the, the Colorado River there, and there was uh, there was some down at the sewage ponds too at the sewage treatment plant. Yeah, I've actually buried there before. It's a great spot. Oh, Hornsby Bend. Yeah, that place is awesome. It's it's really. I lived in Austin for twelve years, and that was one of my favorite spots to go because there's always good birds there. Uh, and no, it doesn't smell bad. I mean, it's a little bit earthy every once in a while, but I've just seen all kinds of stuff out there. Waterfowl yeah, and birds of prey. I don't what it means, but it's on albino um, barn swallow there. And, uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. 
Yeah, that was that was that was great. Uh, yeah, as characters go, I also think yellow-headed. You know, they're just super common, and they're also in in, a, well, in, in like Belize. Yeah, and also uh, Peru and and Brazil. They're they're one of the most commonly. You know, if you're in from my experience in, in the neotropics, it's it's one of the most common you know raptors that you see. You know, around people, they're just kind of ubiquitous. I'm not seeing the other cooler ones, you know. That's I feel like you, I'm seeing the, like, three most common characters. Can you tell me any any stories about the yellow-headeds at all? Have you ever seen them doing anything interesting? I just feel like I see them, like, yelling their heads off at everything, you know? Flying around. <laughs> They're just really vocal. You hear them before you see them often, you know? And um, Have you have you seen them in towns and, like, in cities and that kind of thing? I've, I've seen, seen videos of them in, like, uh, Panama City. Like, you know... I'm trying to, I think I've, I've seen them in like little like settlements and like, you know, flying around like, um, on the edges, but you know, they could just be flying from field to field and just happen to be over houses. I haven't, not, I haven't seen them in like, you know, Kuchiba or like, you know, Belize City or anything, you know? You're like in the, in the city, city proper. Right. But like I have, you know, but you know, I've seen other rappers like Common Blackhawk, I've seen them right, flying right over. Police city, you know, so I definitely keep an eye out, obviously, for them, but yeah. <laughs> this is the thing with characters. There's some, they have some, the characters have some strange force field around them that somehow repels attention. I can't quite figure it out, but of course, I would think that because I'm writing a book about them right now. But uh, it's incredible to me how little attention has been paid to that group of species because they are so interesting. And I think some of it is that they've adapted so well to us. What? Yeah, where does Laughing Falcon fit in with them? Because they're kind of like, they, they have like a similar wing pattern. They kind of, I mean, you know, the characters are are kind of like scavenging falcons, and Laughing Falcon really looks a lot like a Caracara. Yeah, they're I mean, often they're, they're like, often their own line. I mean, they're all falcons, um, but and I I think I mean they divided. There's the tribe. There's the um, uh, Falconini and Palaborini, and I, I think they're in Palaborini, the Laughing Falcon. But they're not—they're not a caracara, strictly speaking. They're—they're um, they're closer to, I think, the forest falcons. It's, yeah, it's interesting because if you look at their like, it seems like all caracaras kind of have a similar, um, like light, light areas with the wing and tail, like, and they and they have that as well. And I don't know if that's maybe well, some, some of that is you know it's it's just probably lifestyle. I mean, they they uh, caracaras aren't built for speed. Um, Although some of them could be pretty quick, but they, uh, but you know, they're not built for speed in the way that that uh, a falco, true falcon, like a peregrine falcon or a kestrel or something is. Um, they're they're more their wings are much more crow-like. You know, it's funny. There's a, a pair of striated caracaras I was just visiting in England in captivity up in the Cotswolds, and these are old birds. They're in their mid 30s, and uh, one of the keepers at the little park where they were living was telling me that the only time they really got upset was when uh, ravens flew over. There was a pair of ravens that nested nearby for a while, and every time they would fly overhead, the characters would get excited and display against them. And they, I wondered if they if they had made the mistake of thinking that they were other characters, because the shape of them is so similar, you know, the shadow from beneath. It's intriguing because, of course, ravens, you know, aren't birds of prey, but uh, characters and ravens are... are very similar in their in their niches, and also I think, and this is underappreciated, in their uh, you know their brains, their their intellectual ability. Yeah, 
I thought I'd um, just to, to 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 check in on another set of what we wanted to talk to you about. Um, yeah. You mentioned something earlier about the demands of of when you're on tour, but um, what kind of what are giving notable burning memories from touring? From touring. Um, what, what, one of the things that got us into this this theme of hey let's talk to let's talk to musicians about about birding um, is just that that when I before I even met Tony and I've known each other for like ten years now but before I met him I saw him in a video someone had done of him birding in Hong Kong when they were on tour of um, who and so when of Tony birding in Hong Kong um, when he had been on tour. And Tony? it got us thinking, oh, yeah, yeah. no, you, the, 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 the video Andy, Andy made of you guys when you were out oh, yeah. there. Yeah. And so that oh, got us thinking. About your kites, yeah. That, like, when, as we're thinking of, like, how, you know, ways to work in observations from cities around the world that, that a, uh, another, uh, birding musician would be, might have some <laughs> interesting tales to tell of, of yeah, you know, although the you thing is that, you know, well, it makes sense for that to be part of an urban wildlife blog because uh, all you see on tour pretty much is cities. It, it's, I mean, yeah. and, or you're in transit between them, and usually the, the drive between them is kind of a strange haze, as you know, where <laughs> your brain isn't really that active. But um, I'm trying to think of anything in particular. I mean, I, <laughs> I remember once being in Toronto, and I stepped outside the venue at Lee's Palace and uh, saw, just happened to see a red-tailed hawk nail a pigeon right on the street in front of the club. They made the most incredible little sideways uh, you know, swerve and just, just absolutely demolished this pigeon that was sitting up on top of the storefront nearby. That's awesome. But How then you, other, um, yeah, <laughs> it was badass. Have you come... Um, do, do you squeeze birding in on tours at all, or like, do you get out the local patches? Is that like part of your where you're at? You know, it just can't. I mean, it's it's too. I wish I could tell you, yeah, I go birding all the time on tour, but I, I think the last couple of tours, I even just left my binoculars at home because I get so frustrated by it. Um, I did go birding wow. in Amsterdam last time I was there, um, and that was really good. Uh, I saw a, a blue fur which I'd never seen before, and oh nice. Uh, and then, it's you know, the, the listeners aren't birds, it's about as absurd as a bird can get. The blue throat? Oh, is it blue throat? I thought you said a hoopoe for some reason. No, blue no, throat. no. No, blue throat. No, it's blue hoopoe throat. Hoopoe's not pretty absurd, though. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think when the last time I saw a hoopoe was. That's probably in Africa. I don't think I was on tour. But yeah, they're, they're, that's a beautiful bird for sure. The canals in them, those are bird great in the canals in Amsterdam. There is, yeah, and you can see, like, more hens and and little herons and things and gray herons. And, um, the the place I went this year that was really well, I went two places this year that were uh, doing research for my book that were just astonishing for birds. One was uh, southern Guyana, and then the other was um, a tributary of the Madeira down in Brazil uh, called the Secundari. And that was the, the first one was um, a wasn't really in the company of any other birders um, than the second one I was. Um, so in, in Brazil, you know, I saw, I saw a lot more small birds that I was able to identify with help, and some of which were just absolutely spectacular. And then uh, in Guyana, it was more of the, the big flashy stuff that I was able to identify, you know, like macaws 
and uh, uh, sun bitterns, you know, things like that. Yeah, that's awesome. That that you, place, uh, Southern Guyana, is just a it's it is such an interesting place. The, the forest is similar to the Amazon forest, you know, it's continuous with it, but it's also quite different. And it's uh, parts of it were just so wild. I went up a river called the Rewa, and uh, there were you know I saw wildlife in there that just vanishes whenever there are people around. There were giant otters everywhere, and, um, giant river turtles. Um, we saw there was a puma just sitting on the bank of the river looking at us. That's um, awesome. Capirs and capybaras and stuff. Which, um, I, you know, I saw a jaguar in Brazil. I didn't see one in, in Guyana, but they were definitely around. I saw tracks and I, I saw a, a tapir that had just been, you know, it had just been attacked by one. In in Brazil, that was, it was actually pretty freaky. We were listening for some kind of, uh, an, I think, an ant ram, like a white-browed ant ram. Uh, and uh, there were three of us standing there, four of us, sorry, and uh, Suddenly, I saw this thing coming towards us in the forest. I couldn't tell what it was, just sort of this reddish-brown shape. I thought it might be a rocket deer or something. And we were on a trail that had just been cut through, you know, a couple of weeks previous. And then, all of a sudden, it was like you could see the rosettes on its fur. And I was like, oh, (laughs) shit, it's a jaguar. And the jaguar, I think, was surprised to see us and, and just... And so we just stood there, and it just stood there, and it kind of just disappeared after a little while. And we kept on birding. That's awesome. I, yeah, when I, I saw a jaguar, just from a boat trip in Brazil, like it, where we was expected to see it, it never just ran into one. But my first, uh, I saw two leopards, and I saw them on tour. Uh, we weren't playing Sri Lanka, but we were playing, we were on tour in Asia, and we had a... Um, you saw um, a leopard in, oh, in Sri Lanka? Yeah. Wow. Yalo National Park is supposed to be like maybe the easiest place to see them in the world because they're um um it's like scrubby savanna. Um mm-hmm. so you have better sight lines than like the forest that you know usually associate leopards in and there's no yeah. there's no uh doles or tigers, so they're like the top predator. I guess it could be more bold, so they're just kinda like you saw one that's like on a rock and like hanging up in a tree and the other one was, was like eating a you know, action deer in the in the in the woods. <laughs> that was, That's we, awesome. We That's amazing. You know, we did tours. We had our um, we bought all Asia Pass and the uh, um, we set our tour dates up before the, the tickets don't go on sale till January. We set the tour dates up, and then when the tickets suddenly went on sale, it didn't go to the Philippines anymore. So we we canceled our Philippines dates because at this point we couldn't afford to spend more money. But we could yeah. go to Sri Lanka according to the tickets, so we just went there on vacation. Wow. So you, you're from Austin, but now you live in New York City? Yeah, I've lived here for the last five years. Do you, where do you get out and burn in New York City? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, Central Park's great. <laughs> like, uh, all these migrants come through Central Park. So that's, you can, you can go in there with a pair of binoculars and see all kinds of stuff without working too hard. And Prospect Park's great too. Um, and honestly, I mean, like, even just sitting at the, uh, I live sort of over near the Brooklyn Bridge on the Brooklyn side. And uh, the other day I was just sitting in my apartment right where I'm sitting now, and um, I heard this, wark, wark, wark. And I was like, for real? And I heard it again, wark, wark, wark. And I looked up and there were four ravens. Wow. And the, that I, I looked it up, you know, that there are ravens in the city now. Uh, there's a pair that seems to be nesting somewhere in Chelsea, I think. And so they, they're... Uh, they're definitely nesting in Queens. Like, they're coming in. 
it's really cool to see them. We've also got a, there's a pair of peregrine falcons that's right. The territory seems to be somewhere right around here. So if I go up on the roof of my building, like I saw them yesterday, just flying around in the it was a windy day. It seemed like they're having a good time. That's all. Yeah, we have peregrines. Yeah, we have peregrines next to City Hall, and we have um, we've been seeing um, um, ravens in Philly too, but we haven't uh, um, no one's found the nest yet. So we're yeah, we're, that's uh, the mystery. Nice. Like, where's the nest? And does somebody know? Does the <laughs> New York, of course, has that has a celebrity hawk, this pale male, and that built his nest on that building. Yeah. Uh, and I went over to see him, thinking that it was going to be a little bit of a search to to find him, and I went to the, the pond in Central Park where you, it's the best view of the building. And I looked up and there was a nest and there was pale male sitting to the left of it. <laughs> it was like he was on display. <laughs> you know? wow. Oh, okay. There he is. Hi. Uh, Did you, are you, you from Austin or you just lived there in your early, is that where you got your start in like playing around? Yeah, I was, I, I'm, I'm not from Austin. I, I moved there in 1999 and lived there for 12 years. So I lived there longer than I've ever lived anywhere else. But before that, I was from the southeast. So Hornsby Bend is like the classic spot, right? Because the sewage treatment plant right in Austin. Is there any other spots you talk about in Austin that are like... Oh, God, sure. I mean, um, Laguna Gloria over on the west side uh, is a little bit, you know, easily accessible and a great spot. Um, You know, if you go... Austin's so interesting because it sits right in this boundary between uh, a couple of different ecosystems. So if you head west even a little bit, you end up in this sort of hill country, juniper, uh, scrubby stuff, a lot of limestone. And then if you go east, you end up in a pine forest in no time. So uh, it's really possible to see all kinds of different, uh, you know, all kinds of different birds, all kinds of different habitats, different wildlife. Um, it's, just, it's a transitional kind of place, which makes it great for birding. And Texas in general is, is just such a tremendous birding state. Well, I'm Tony Crowsdale. I'm still Liam Wilson. I'm still Billy Brown. And today we're flipping the script where I am one of the normal co-hosts of the podcast, but I am going to be interviewed by um, Billy. And since I'm being interviewed, we brought in uh, Liam Wilson, who is um, our bass player for our our intro song. Uh, He also does all the bass behind the weird interludes the segues that we record um, that I do a stupid voice for like set up rapper organism what's stupid about that that was stupid I don't, I don't, maybe I should say stupid maybe we should edit that out that's true yeah sorry <laughs> um, I got tackled the other day I was at a uh, friend was a hick and like volunteer appreciation night and this dude like love tackled me and was like set up rapper organism <laughs> so let's get out there which makes you quite happy and we're supposedly working on a synth-top organism song. Maybe by the end of this season we'll have it or not. It depends. Um, mostly it depends on what Liam's up to because, you know, he tours in a band that has a baby and shit like that. So with Liam, we brought Liam, you know, plays bass in, in the Dilder Escape Plan and this uh, new death metal project named... John From. And what's the name about? It's like uh, like the Cargo Colts, South Pacific Islanders, World War II. Uh, American soldiers would land there. Uh, I mean, the story is, I don't know, there's lots of history there. But basically, the Islanders were asking these American soldiers, who are you? They'd be like, oh, I'm John from New York, or I'm John from Chicago. So they started spelling all this John, F-R-U-M, 
and that's what they call their god and who they expect to come and save them. Uh, it's kind of heavy. It's interesting. So I don't know. I thought it would be a funny name for death metal band because it sounds like a singer-songwriter, but... Yeah. Anyway. Let's talk about some touring, some birding. Yeah, and today's podcast is powered by uh, two different kinds of scotch. Uh, we got Lafroig and we got Chivas Regal. Is that how you say it? I'm not sure. Uh, we'd be happy to be corrected by a Scotsman, perhaps. And if you're in Edinburgh and you happen to see <laughs> yeah. a fox run across the street. Yeah, or a Bonksy, which is the, 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 what they call great schools. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I guess, okay, guys, it's, it's up to you, so start talking and ask me questions. Uh, well, yeah, uh, so I guess, you know, we kind of pre-gamed this conversation a little bit, and we were, you know, I was, I guess, drawn into this to open up the conversation or open up the dialogue about uh, being in a band and touring and... Touring around your other interests or kind of like touring places that you also want to bird in and how you go about booking those tours, especially at a time when most bands were not playing these countries. I mean, that was kind of what always impressed me about it. Um, you know, and you would go and you would play these shows, but then you would also come back with these crazy birding stories and, you know, um, you know, and, and, and then just kind of the intersection of, where your band members shared your interest, did not share your interest, uh, grew to share your interest, uh, grew to really hate, you know, your interest. I don't know. Um, I feel like Tony, from my perspective, seems to have sucked a lot of people into birding. Yeah, well, specifically, uh, our bass player, Bull, um, he became, he is now a birder and goes out and, you know, he will say, um, you know, largely due to being on tour and going birding with me. Yeah. Uh, but one of the, in- I mean, it's a lot to unpack there. But you yeah, can- but one of the instances that like, not saying like led to the breakup of the band as in conflict, but it led to the breakup of the band in terms of like an incident that made me reevaluate my priorities was Bull and I went birding in Kuala Lumpur, which is a, a, a wildlife reserve just north of Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, and um, we gave ourselves. 10 hours to get to the next city, uh, JB, I think Johor Bor, which is right across the streets from Singapore. And we gave ourselves 10 hours to get to the show. Um, it took us 11 and, and we missed the show. Um, I mean, I will say our defense, part of us missing the show was that I think the other bandmates got mad and kind of like, or like gave up rather than just waited for us. Um, but I don't think it was that, one, but whatever, like, uh, luckily, the kids could all come to Singapore the next day because they could literally walk, you know, to you know, to the show from from that city. It made us. They wouldn't wait an hour. Yeah, it, I digress. Well, they didn't know we're they didn't know we're coming. Okay. You know what I mean? They didn't know we're, they didn't know we, there was no way to get a hold of them. Was the day before the age before you all had cell phones or? Yeah. Well, we're also in, in, yeah. I mean, in Asia, we didn't, you know, we're yeah. touring in Asia, so um, we tried to get. I think believe we. Why tried. didn't you email them? <laughs> well, we took we got on the bus and literally like. It's personally, it's probably like 200 miles from one city to the other. So we figured, oh, what's the big deal? So it would take us, you know, five hours max if we're like changing and buses yeah. go slow. It took so long. Um, but anyway, so that happened and I really thought about it and I was like, you know, it wasn't an un, 
reasonable thing we did where we, you know, it was a mistake, but the point was brought up, well, maybe, you know, your priority here is you're on tour. You should not do anything else just in case something disastrous like this happens. And I'm like, the idea, I'm like, and I really search myself. I'm like, the idea of going on tour and not getting out to see wildlife just in case a disaster happens and I miss a show, like, I'm not going to do that. And... And it made me realize that, like, my priority was no longer, like, making music, and it was the wildlife. And I had to, like, focus on that. But even before you did that, did you... Or... Why do you have... Were you getting out all the time to see wildlife, or were you able to see wildlife just around you passively when you're... There was certainly part of that. Yeah, we'd see wildlife, you know. But, I mean, I'm not gonna... Yes, I do the Auburn Wildlife Podcast. Urban Wildlife is a huge part of my life. But I, um, oh, but I, um, I'm not, I don't want to, you know, if, if I'm paying, you know, when you're supposed to be touring Asia, you know, you're, we're, um, you know, they're not flying you in there. Like they don't, you're paying out of your pocket to go to these countries and, you know, it's awesome and it's wonderful to play these kids and there are fans. They, they have a record, you know, they, our records are released over there, um, and, um, they, they locally produce. They are legitimately fans of ours. Like we're not just going over there and being like, "Oh, we're this spectacle from America." <coughs> this way. Like they're our fans, and you know we do have a responsibility to them, absolutely. And, and my heart was broken that we missed that show. <coughs> but you know, with that said, if I'm going over there, especially on my own dime, like I want to get out and see wildlife, and you know, in in you know, crazy, pristine, beautiful places, you know. You know, as, as much as I love urban wildlife, like, you're not going to see an elephant, you know, or um, a giant hornbill in, you know, a pocket park downtown of, of you know, these places. So I really did want to get out. And, I mean, good, we still were able to do a lot of that. But the idea that, like, I can't, you know, spend a day in the reserve a few hours from the city uh, just for the off chance that something like this would happen, you know, again, like, it just... I was like, I felt really bad. I, I, I you know, I even like, I, you know, I, I, I got choked <laughs> up. I cried a little bit, you know. I felt really bad. I disappointed everybody. But when I searched myself and said what I, you know, I said, but I didn't feel like I did anything wrong either. Yeah. But, okay. But there was an incident. But... Well, I'll, I'll bring up something I heard this week just to interject. Um, I was listening to a podcast where it was talking about Woody Allen saying something like, you know, if somebody woke you up in the middle of the night and shook you and said, what are you? You know, that's kind of what you do. So I think in that moment when somebody woke you up in the middle of the night and shook you and said, what are you? What do you do? You would probably say, I'm a herpetologist or I'm an ornithologist or whatever. Not, I'm a singer in a punk band. You yep. Know? And I think that's kind of just the end of it. It's it's as simple as like you use that as a vehicle to do what you're actually doing now. Not that you wouldn't sing for a punk band now, but your priority is wildlife um, and kind of always has been so all these other things have been a vehicle for that not that they aren't sincere but that's the impression I get and about other things I mean you know I'm putting a spin on it but yeah well, my root of be getting into punk was like being like a kid growing up in Philly getting lots of fights feeling alienated and I was into wildlife since I was like nine years old and then when I get old enough I stopped reading Ranger Rick and start reading like Autobahn magazine and Nature Conservancy. I start realizing that what I love was under siege, and so I was like alienated and like politically conscious. And then I got introduced to like 
political punk bands when I was 15, 14, 15, and like stuck with it, and then afforded my own. And then from going on tour, first with, you know, as a roadie for Kill the Man of Questions, and then with my own band Rambo, I started seeing wildlife in cities, like, you know, in, in like, in the canals of Amsterdam, you know. So and let's talk about that. Like, what do you see in the canals in Amsterdam? So, like, I remember, like, you just, I didn't even have, I, I, I did ask to borrow my parents, like, bird guide to Europe. Um, and I didn't even have binoculars, because so I left my binoculars at a punk fest in Toronto. Um, like, no, not even Toronto, it was like outside of Toronto, like an hour outside of Toronto, it hit by a tornado, everybody ran, and then I lost my binoculars. Um, so I didn't have them. Were they nice binoculars? They were like $50 Tascos. Okay. Um, Something I've discovered is how birders, it's almost like sniffing butts, like they compare binoculars. Yeah, there's some of that, but like, there's definitely like, you know, you don't want to be snooty and be like, if you don't have, if you have sub thousand dollar binoculars, you're not serious. Because I mean, come on. But people sort of walk up to you, like, and they don't know what to talk about. They're like, so hey, you got the Monarch forty five hundred. Could yeah, I don't, you know, I, I think you kind of Saturn was discovered with less. Let's you know, <laughs> yeah, real. You get the Swarovski. But I will say, um, when I was in on tour uh, in um, in this very tour we're talking about. Um, when we were in Sri Lanka, we did not play Sri Lanka. Um, we just went there um, because our Philippine dates we had to cancel because the air, there was an issue with the airline tickets um, for the All Asia Pass, so we couldn't go to the Philippines anymore. Um, which is crazy because it would have been only like four more dollars, but for some reason, when you're like twenty six and like um, scraping by, four hundred dollars seems like the world. Four hundred, yeah, four hundred. Yeah, that's a lot when you're twenty-six. Yeah, and, but on top of you just spent, well, you know, the band spent you know two thousand dollars each for plane tickets, so it seemed like a huge deal. Yeah. Um, so anyway, but we could still fly to uh, Sri Lanka, and I met this guy Rohan there, who was our guide. Um, took us to Yamnashara Park, and who's phenomenal. And he was a uh, before he was a tour guide, he was like a local guide at this hotel right outside of Yamnashara Park that got smashed by the tsunami and and he's showing us like the grounds of the hotel just annihilated you know the whole time we were there it was one of the i was very proud to be american because very few people go to sri lanka very few americans so the only americans most of the people have ever met were the marines that came and like cleared their roads build them like like you know um um you know field hospitals and like field mess halls and all this stuff to like, you know, take care of people in this disaster. And maybe very, very proud of America. You know, America is seeing like went to the sea turtle rescue. Coming from an anarchist. Yeah, went to the, uh, um, you know, we went to the um, sea turtle uh, place where they they find you know sea turtle eggs and they hatch them safely and release them. And all the like benches and tables were covered in US aid bags. So 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 he's telling me the story, you know, all obviously all these people die, you know, horrible tragedy. And in on this he mentions that he lost his Soroskis. His like, you know, fifteen hundred dollar binoculars. Like he, Which for a guy in Sri Lanka is a lot of money. Right. But I mean like in this horrible tragedy this guy was such a birder that he still made a point to be like, and I lost my Soroskis. Uh, I did send a couple of emails around to people who I knew news like reporting, and I should have probably followed up with more. I wouldn't be surprised if Sarowski would have gave him a pair, you know. But I never didn't follow that up. story. Yeah. yeah, and but yeah, I don't know how I got on that tangent. But yeah, but but so anyway, we had this you know this thing happen on tour, and like 
the guy who was the most angry about it was Andy, who I know Billy through, and Andy's still, I mean, and Bull and Andy are still my two best friends, so, you know, these guys saw me at my worst, and they're still, well, Bull was kind of complicit in this thing that we did. Yeah. And, um, so, so Bull was with, became a birder with, you know, and Andy got mad at me being birdie, but, but generally it wasn't a problem, because I was taking them to be like, everybody in the band was outdoorsy to some level, you know. For sure. So they were into it, you know. Hey, and that's why I chose to be like, hey, let's go to Yala National Park because, you know, we did actually go to the Rainforest Reserve too where if you go to Rainforest, you rarely see anything else but birds because it's hard to see anything. But, you know, in Yala National Park, we saw elephants and um, water buffalo and two leopards and a sloth bear and, you know, all this stuff that, like, if you're not a birder, you can't help but think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. I'm and um, Sherlock and Rat Snake. And, um, like the, he just told me it was a swamp and a rat snake. Okay. Sorry, it was up sorry. in a tree looking like a rat. about what species. Okay. And there was, um, we did see mugger crocodiles and we saw, was it savannah monitor? There was a monitor. Maybe not savannah, it's not like There was, I forget sort of, what kind. So sort of land monitor. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and also the water monitor, like Liam was mentioning earlier, saw in Thailand, they're everywhere in Asia. Let me, let me ask this question. So when we're talking about Southeast Asia, um, as somebody who's, both traveled there and played there. Uh, it is certainly more of a tourist destination than it is a band-centric destination. Only maybe recently has a, a city like Kuala Lumpur or maybe Bangkok or Singapore city, like, you know, risen to be like an international um, invitation place for, for bands. At the time that you went and did this stuff, it was certainly... I think in what year is this? Like, this is like, what, 2000? 2003? I think you know, it was like, 2003 and yeah. 2005. Or 2003, 2006. So, like, pretty early, you know, and, like, as, you know, not to say other bands weren't doing it, but it wasn't like it was punk bands doing it, or, like, top-tier Rolling Stones kind of acts, you know? Um, or am I right? You know? Yeah, there was no, I mean, no... Okay. There was no infrastructure for that. There was no, like... Right. There was no... no like, routing or anything yeah. like that. Um, yeah, people, we were, I was checking my email in a squat in Croatia. Right. And I get an email, and, I, and it's from um, Ahmed in Kuala Lumpur who asked if he could release our record locally. And I was like, because they can't afford to import them there. Well, you know, and, I, and I was like, yeah, well, well, yeah, you can release it, but we'll also come there and play. Yeah. What were we doing um, in Croatia? On tour. Yeah. <laughs> so just quickly stick to a question. Like, if you're going to a place like that where, um, I guess in the grand objective view of it, it is kind of 50-50, like a tourist destination for you and a tour as a band. Um, and I think that it's easy to argue that if not even more of a tourist destination in a place like that than it is a band routing. So having the excuse to go visit other things. Like, I mean, one of the few times that I've kind of ended a tour and stayed where I was was in Southeast Asia. I, like, stayed in Thailand and then went to Vietnam, and it was great, you know? But very rarely do I end a tour and stay <coughs> for multiple reasons. Um, so anyway, getting... When you tour in other places or when you toured in, like, let's say Europe... Were you still touring places that were A, as like, like Croatia back then was still not, you know, was also not a very readily toured place. Um, and, and, the net, and we also did Macedonia and Serbia, sure. which are way less. Yeah. Places. I mean, I've only done Croatia in the last year, yeah. you know. So, 
Point being, when you played other more developed, less third world, for lack of a better term, places, did the balance of birding and banding... Uh, there was very little yeah. birding, uh, <coughs> and it would all be incidental. You know, we um, we you know we just hit a park nearby, or just see things fly over, or out the window of the van. Because that's the thing is, like when you are in, um, you can make money in Europe. Yeah. So you you so you do so you play every day because if you don't play a day, then you then you don't get money you for still that. Have day. To water your horses, right? And you're paying for the van. In the back line every day that you don't play. Yeah. Um, if you're not playing, you're paying. All equipment. They call it back line. Yeah, all equipment. So, um, and we took the money. We make money in Europe. You know, we make a fair amount of money in Europe. Yeah. And we used that to buy our tickets. We played Europe twice, but the, the second time we toured Europe, we used the the money from, we made in Europe to, to pay, f- to fund our, tour, our second tour in Asia. The first tour in Asia, we actually paid out of pocket. But, uh, we, uh, and... And then so, but even of the incidental stuff, do you, is there anything? Do you remember anything interesting that you saw from the window of the van, or incidentally flying over? Oh yeah, the I mean, park that you happened to hit when you were like a few hours before your show or something. Like yeah, that. I remember seeing like long-tailed tits, uh, which are like is really you know it's like animals of the chickadees. I remember seeing them like feet, like I don't know what they're picking at rock salt or something, and like on the ground, like by this house we're staying at, and you know, I think some birds like well, you, where. Yeah. This was somewhere in the Balkans. I forget exactly where. Um, I, which is cool because years later, um, my friend, I, uh, there's the first Bathory LP has a, um, was it, there was a misprint on the album cover and the goat was yellow and instead of, and, and I bought some Jim Winters. Amazing. Me and Lee was a really good yeah. friend of Jim Winters, um, who was briefly in Earth Crisis and in other bands. Yeah. But he, yeah. uh, um, Love you, Jim. Yeah. So we got this, uh, I bought, I had this, I, I, hap, I found out that this record is unbelievably rare. It's like this you know, pioneering, like, Viking, Swedish, you know, black, proto-black metal band. And my friend in, who's Christopher from DS13 and Imperial Leather and all these bands in, in Sweden, he, um, was wearing a Bathory shirt. And, uh, I was like, yo, man, you got the yellow goat? And he goes, no, that's the holy grail. I'll never, I'll probably never have it. You know, it's, and I was like, I got it upstairs. And he's like, yeah, right. And I'm like, yeah, come upstairs. So he's at my house because I was doing a show for his band. And I show it to him and he's like, he couldn't believe it that, you know, and I was like, take it. And he's like, you're, you're shitting me. I'm like, take it. I was like, it means way more to you than it does to me. You're a great friend. Take it. Yeah. And years later, he writes me, he's like, I still owe you something for that record. What do you want? And by this point, I stopped collecting records. And I said, send me some Swedish bird-watching stuff. And then get a package in the mail a few weeks later. And one of them is a long-tailed tit shirt. So, like, when... Oh, and and like, see that long-tailed tit um, on tour with Kill the Man of Questions? That was one of the things that got me back into birding. Cause I, on tour with Tit, name of the band? Kill the Man Who Questions. That was just a roadie for them. And that was, like... So that really was, like... That was, like, full circle for me. Because, like, yeah. you know? And it was, like... So that, and, and you know, I, was, I remember, you know, seeing like hooded crows and carrying crows and where, um, well, they're all, they're, they're all throughout Europe, you know, in, in, uh, and, you know, they're like our crows are in the cities, you know, I mean, I remember seeing hooded crows in Stockholm and, uh, seeing, um, <clears throat> Northern Latwings in Serbia on the side of the road. And, um, um, if you had to pick one city in both Europe and Southeast Asia, like the one place where it was like unexpectedly you know, urban, 
But but still wildlife. Good yeah, just a, a place where, you know, like I was saying, like earlier, I remember in like Old Town Tel Aviv seeing two like a pair of white, you know, probably barn owls, just being like it's just really bizarre, and it just kind of seemed almost symbolic. You know, it was such a cool sighting. Well, for um, me, it would be uh, Singapore. So yeah, I mean, in, yeah, in Asia, it would be Singapore because it has these incredible reserves. Right. You know, this ma- you know, I mean, I like Singapore. It's cool. I like other cities. Like I like Bangkok. I like Kuala Lumpur a little bit better because I like Hong Kong a whole lot better. Um, Have but you seen the bats in Sydney? Yeah, yeah, that's impressive. I made got a, an interview with a woman from the Australasian Bat Society talking about um, urban fruit bats. That was like, I mean, seeing that was pretty. I was in, in Brisbane. And I also made out with a beautiful Australian girl while fruit bats were flying over her head. So that was kind of awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, but. I definitely like was like, hey, do you want to take a walk and look for fro- t- Tawny Frogmouse with me? And we didn't see them, but we saw the bats and made out. And but it was cool. It was like it was awesome. But the problem was, is like I was kind of on drugs and Kinda. couldn't really get into it. Well, at the time I was just straight edge, didn't do any drugs, and Kinda. I had a toothache. And I was on tour, and someone like here's a painkiller, and it was like a real painkiller with <laughs> some aspirin, and I was like. Oh man, I'm like Percocet. This girl's really pretty, and there's and there's a bunch of um, um, fruit bats flying around. Uh, this is awesome, but bad country shit. Yeah. So, well, when it comes to Europe, for me, two things come to mind. Like, I was really amazed by Rome because of two things: um, kestrels, you know, European kestrels nest on the Colosseum. I mean, how amazing is that? And the right outside of Rome is like a wetland, like one of those like sewage mitigation things, you know, man wetland. And I know about this because after we played our show in Rome, this guy comes up and interviews us and he's like, ask, he's like, what for his fans? And he asked everybody, he's like, what does everybody do in the band besides, you know, you know, play man. And I went through everybody in the band and I ended with me and I was like, oh, you know, I, I'm really into birds. I just got back from, um, doing field research in the Arctic with snow geese and I'm a real big bird watcher blah 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 and he goes that's very interesting to me because I am an ornithologist and he was like a ranger and studied raptor migration he took me up birding the next day Amazing. so Rome really you know but the one thing to me and if you talk about we should talk urban wildlife is the storks that like nest on like a church or a house these, you know, like in the towns, you know, and like in Europe, you're saying, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember seeing stuff like that in. Um, I want to say, like maybe it was um, Belgium or Holland or Germany, uh, but yeah, just seeing like just kind of into these like smaller towns and these you know chimneys with these giant, you know, yeah, just giant nests on top. Yeah, because our only stork is the wood stork, and you got to go to like. South Carolina or, you know, Florida and, and they're, you know, well, I've seen urban nesting wood storks, but they're in like sewage treatment plant, like cypress trees, you know. It's yeah. not quite the same thing. It's like, it's yeah. like as if our chimney swifts were like, how tall? Three, four feet tall? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy. So that, that, that's the kind of two, but I, I really, I really want to go back to, I really want to go back to Europe. I don't want to sound like jaded. But I'm not going to say I'm overseeing tropical birds, but the thing is, I you know, once you get into tropical birding, you know, like, obviously that's where the diversity is, you go there all the time, but like, I'm really kind of um, fascinated. I want to go to another temperate part of the world and see other temperate birds, because I haven't really paid attention to temperate birds in a long time. Did you ever make it to Japan? Yeah, we played, we toured Japan twice. 
Remember, that's why I said I saw the black clay over Hiroshima. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we went to Hokkaido. So our, um, our, a guy who did our tour, he plays in Muga. Um, he, uh, um, he'd never been to Hokkaido, the North Island in a, you know, it's kind of like the Alaska of, of Japan or whatever. I mean, it's, um, still pretty urbanized, you know, there's been rural, but just, you know, some big parks and, and, um, and I said, I want to go there. And he's like, well, I'll go with you. I've never been there. And it's the kind of part of the world where, like, you know, you don't have to be a birder because it's like, you know, just beautiful, like, cliffs and, you know, sea ice and all this stuff. And then, and then, you know, stellar sea eagles, which are a third bigger than bald eagles, and red crowned crane, which is like the emblem of Japan, and all these other charismatic, you know, mega birds. And, you know, so, uh. There's some very interesting rat snakes, too. But go on. Nice. And yeah, and we, uh, you know, we were there in the winter, and, uh, um, it was funny because he's like from more south, you know, he's from Honshu and like, uh, he was in Nagoya, so he didn't, you know, they're still like, kind of like, I don't know if they're called, they're like palmettos, like kind of like the, a little bit more cold tolerant palms, you know, like you, probably like somewhere like North Carolina, and so I actually had to bring him, I went to the thrift store and got him warm clothes, you know, because he never, didn't have any, you know, and it was, it was really cool, so, um. I forget how I talked about that. We're talking about temperate birds. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, so, Europe yeah. Back to but, yeah, but the thing is, remember, birding, I, I kind of got my, you know, going on tour at 24 got me back into birding, and then um, I didn't, you know, I, I had to, like, get back into it and advance even beyond where I was when I was a little kid. So I want to go back to these places with more time and with the skill level that I've achieved now where I can really hit it hard and, like, and also, the internet is a thing now. Yeah. And like, you know, I mean, it was just starting sure. then, you know? And so, and just really, so now like, you can go and really know where things are and like, I have a lot more information. So, and I, and I want to see my friends. I want to see my friends and, you know, I do want to go back to, I have a friend in Korea. I want to go, he's going to, he's a, he's a bird in Korea. But I, you know, I want to go and see all my friends in, um, Europe. And it's funny, like, Ben from Hardskin, um, well, I'm sorry, Johnny Takeaway from Hardskin, his nom de guerre. Um, was like, yo, come, he's like, come to my house, you know, and look at the birds in the garden outside of London, you know, like, it's cool, like, as punks get older, they chill out and get into more hobbies, uh, like, and I've been able to do that where, you know, when I'm on, you know, my friend Paul is a drummer of Tragedy, and you know, his hair is gone, those are the bands that, you know, I did shows for, them for all these years, and now Paul's like, come to Portland and let's go salmon fishing, and we totally did, we were like fishing for salmon in like the, you know, the Columbia River and the, you know, river, so, it's awesome that, like, as my, I was kind of, like, in the other stuff besides birding while I was touring and meeting all these people, um, but now they've gotten older and chilled out and, like, got other hobbies, and a lot of those hobbies are outdoorsy hobbies, so now I can go visit my friends, they mean a lot to me, and, and do either, you know, and, you know, explore nature, you know, either birding or fishing or hiking, you know, in these other cities, and I, I want to do that to Europe, you know, I want to go back and hang out in Europe and see you know, all the wildlife in European cities. And now we do the podcast. I want to go back to Europe and really, um, you know, explore the cities, you know, while I'm visiting my friends. I have the urge. So, so, uh, as a nature lover, do you think of yourself as a birder? Liam, do you think of yourself as a birder or anything in particular? Uh, no, not necessarily. Just sort of a, uh, just a lover of the outdoors and just nature lover. Um, 
Well, you do have mid-range binoculars. Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I absolutely, I look forward to the opportunities to go out and spend time with Tony and, you know, other people that I get the opportunity to bird with occasionally. Um, you know, it's certainly more of like a pastoral, um, you know, campfire-ish type experience for me where it's very social and socially driven. Um, but I am a, uh, I don't know, an, an intellectual, so to speak. And, and, uh, I like sort of collecting information and, um, yeah, I don't know. And, uh, so yeah, say, so I don't, I, I know, but I, it, officially I am not necessarily a birder. It's something well, that, okay. uh, yeah. I would like to get more into, but yeah. I was going to say, I myself am, I'm warming to birding, um, mm-hmm. getting there, but, uh, I, I'm the herper in the group. Um, and so what I kind of, and I, and even before we, well, part of what led us to do the podcast and that we had these interests in the first place is that I've always, always, since I moved to Philadelphia, I've loved like herping vacant lots and like abandoned industrial spaces and that kind of thing. And so now I want to go, I think of places I've traveled, not in touring, but living abroad in central and South America. And now I'm like, Thinking of all the vacant lots, <laughs> all yeah, sure. the all the old factories, um, all the places I could have been looking under boards, yeah, uh, and didn't, and now I want to go back and do that again. So I totally, I dig how that feels. Um, I want to ask you guys, both of you, I mean, in touring, and this is sort of shifting a little bit to this to to one of our favorite terms, the synanthropic organisms. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about sort of the the native wildlife and, and fauna. Um, it, it just, it, do you have any memories of, of things like rats, you know, or, or what we think of as pest species, but we, you know, more generously call synanthropic organisms, you know, or pigeons or whatever. Well, yeah, one comes to mind, um, and you'll like this because there well, two species come to mind is geckos. And, uh, and I feel like, you know, I'm from Philly, so I feel like rats don't like, stick out my mind, you know, I see all the rats, you know, like, I just expect to see rats in cities, I can't really even come up with a memory, you know, um, but, you know. Of not seeing rats in cities. Yeah, <laughs> but in, uh, there's house geckos all over, you know, like, you're in a, you're, you know, wherever you are, there's geckos in Asia, like, behind your, your headboard of your, um, you know, your guest house or your friend's house you're staying at, but one of my memories, I might have even talked about this, was the gecko, let's talk about the gecko in a, in Bangkok, the Tokyo Gecko? Yeah, the, we yeah. So we no, talk- we don't harm mention it again. Yeah, well, saying how, you know, my friend took me, I really want to see one of these Tokyo Geckos, and he went, and we went to, like, this, you know. This- and we'll stop to describe a Tokyo Gecko, which is a, a large arboreal <laughs> gecko, but with a massive head. Um, and when I, I remember I wanted to take care of one for a guy I knew in school when I was a kid, um, and it bit me once and it felt like when the door, like when you, like not the front side of the door, but sort of the hinge side of the door, if you ever get your finger caught oh. in that, that's what it felt like. Yeah, they're notoriously mean. Ornery. Yeah. So, I, um, this guy, behind this guy's house was a, you know, a corrugated fiberglass piece that was just propped up and he pulled it and there's like the egg cemented to the, to the, to the wall, you know, and then there's a couple young ones and, uh, uh, a Siamese cat, which is funny because we're in Thailand, and a Siamese cat just comes out and houses one right in front of us. 
And I was like, this is crazy, you know. It was also in that yard. It was also a nesting uh, um, Oriental magpie robin. And I, you know. What the hell is an Oriental magpie? This beautiful black and white little flycatcher. Okay. Um, and um, <coughs> so I remember seeing that. I remember uh, seeing uh, white bre- uh, white breasted. I think it is the white breasted kingfisher. It has a couple different names, I think. But yeah. And they call it white breasted kingfisher, which is crazy because it's brown and like aquamarine on the back. I don't know why they call it the American's white breast, but I saw that on top of a radio antenna in Kuala Lumpur. Um, you know, also seen macaques in cities in, in you know Asia, um, and that was really you know that was amazing to me. You know, plus like going to like you know some of the, you know, going to like um, Sungi Bulo, this amazing wetland reserve in Singapore, and seeing a estuarine crocodile. You know, saltwater crocodile, seeing that. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, amazing, you know, wildlife that I got to see in these cities, both, like, incidentally and also, like, seeking them out. You know, like, going in, you know, on tour in uh, Surabaya, Indonesia, there was a whole group of punks that were, they found that I was a bird watcher, um, and so they arranged to take me bird watching, you know. I remember, I'm, like, 260, you know, I'm a big, big man, and... And these kids put me on the back of their like scooters. In fact, one time, <laughs> one time we went somewhere where we went up a hill, and they literally had to get off and had to walk up the hill, like a basically a mountain, because I was too heavy um, for you know to be two of us on the scooter. Um, and um, but there wasn't. We were, so these guys took me to, to rice paddies, like on the edge of this you know industrial city with like really bad air pollution, and we saw like you know this endemic little kingfisher and like. Uh, white winged black terns and color, uh, the, uh, what is it? The little, um, Javan plovers and all this, you know, it was amazing, you know, and, you know, it was, I mean, it's just this crazy industrial city, you know, in, uh, oh. so yeah, that, that, that's one of my favorite memories. And I really wish I could get in touch with these kids, you know, um, you know, I don't know if the punks that took me birding in Surabaya, if anybody get a hold of them, you know, let me know. That is a priority, man. We gotta get a hold of these guys. Yeah, so those kids were awesome. Um, I'm trying to think other. Taipei in uh, Taiwan. Leave it open, Mike's coming. Has a massive. It's like, it's probably like the Wissahickon Park or um, for, like Forest Park in Portland or whatever, one of those big, you know, parks. And it's you just triggered a guy and then to contact about Taipei. Go ahead. But this park is like, right, you know, there's a wetland park near the, um, with like boardwalk and mangroves that I went to and saw some great wildlife there. And then I went into this, this forest park and like the hills, probably still in Taipei and saw like, you know, Taiwan magpie and Taiwan, um, <clears throat> barbit and all these other amazing birds, you know, it was awesome. And so that's, that was a great city for urban wildlife that we need to talk to people about, you know. If we can find anybody to talk, you know, there. And, oh, man, when they get Taipei in the Botanic Gardens, um, there's nesting Malayan night herons, which are a super rare bird that, like, you know, I mean, um, they're like a cryptic, like, they're like a forest-living night heron um, that is really hard to see. And for some reason, they, there's a breeding population of them in Taipei, in the Botanic Garden, and they're really easy to see. There's a, there's a German guy who would post a lot on Field Hurt Forum um, who... Uh, who I'm thinking of this guy Hans who moved to Malaysia he moved to Borneo but I think he's he's a, he's a German guy I think he's like an English translator or something like that 
um, or maybe multi-language my translator who had lived in Taipei was posting all the time from Taipei then moved to Borneo so I'm thinking he's the kind of guy I want to get to record something and send us notes or to connect us to people in Taipei so. we played the Indonesian side of Borneo and um, in what they call it Kalimantan and Liam Gigi hi nice to meet you pleasure in the um, right outside the city like basically still in like the city district is a nature um, center. Um, it's like the gateway to this preserved area, and they have like uh, sun bears in an enclosure that have been taken from um, captivity, but they can't be released in the wild. Basically, say wherever there's enough habitat to have a sun bear, there's already a sun bear there. So you put them there, they'll be you know kicked out by the sun bears. There's also a couple orangutans still in this forest and everything, and so we played that. We've had an amazing show in. Uh, uh, it's Balik Papa is a city. We played the, had an amazing show there, uh, and hung, and stayed in this, um, a few nights in the nature reserve. I got bit by a spider, um, two inches from my nuts, which really freaked me out. Which direction, Tony? <laughs> this is on my thigh, and I, and I drew, I did the thing where I draw a, uh, a circle to see, a circle to see if I guess it was fine though, but I was like, of all places, I mean, to get, I got bit by a spider in Borneo, right by my nuts, and I was like, "This is crazy." I such a crazy feeling waking up to being bitten by a spider. That's um, nuts. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Those kids are great. Uh, in fact, they um, shout out to uh, that spider. Yeah, the <laughs> bulls are bass player, but um, there's the banana spiders and there's the nuts. <laughs> Tim Bull was the. Uh, oh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's talk about nut spiders. Tim Bull was. Uh, one of the guys that works at the reserve, he married um, one of the, I forgot her name, but his wife is an uh, American who was working at the reserve too, and they moved, since moved to um, the States, and I want to hang out with them down here, but, um, you know, um, man, we had such a great time playing, you know, I mean, amazing show in, in Balak Papa, I mean, it's, it's awesome, you're like in Borneo playing a show, the kids know your records, so they're like going, going crazy. You just saw the day before you saw, or earlier that day I saw Black Hornbill. I mean, this is just awesome. There was a famous incident there too, where like, um, we like, I like, my sandals got stolen a couple days before, um, because someone, I guess one of them was a souvenir, because they're mine, and I only had one pair of shoes, so when I'm walking through the forest, I didn't really want to get them too muddy, <clears throat> and I was like really like frustrated, like, this is like a frustrating experience because every, you know, we get to the forest too late to really see any birds or walking too fast. You know, it's, it's hard. These, a lot of these countries, you don't really have, um, go there on your own. You know, it's not like here, you just, you know, you go to a park in the U.S. and you like, they let you in and give you a trail map. You have to like arrange for a guide to get there. But the time this all worked out, it's like too late to see anything and they're walking you around too fast. You know, it's, I, I don't want to sound like ungrateful, but it's just like this, it seems like a lot of these like developing countries, there's an unbelievable amount of bureaucracy. To get anything done, that's like, and um, and so I was really frustrated, and I was walking along this river, and you know, and it's the trail's really narrow. I have to basically, you know, I'm a big wide man. I have to kind of walk single file. I mean, I have to like one foot from the other to not fall into this canal, and my foot gets stuck in the mud, and I <laughs> and I lift it up, my sho- pair of shoes. and my and my shoe's still stuck in there, and I pick it up, and I just toss it up the up the trail. And then, like when I go to when I go to pick it, you know, pick it back up. I lean over, and 
I didn't realize like the the bank. I, I you know you kind of expect to be able to step in the water a little bit, like because you know no, it was a cut bank that was like it was over my head. So I went into this river with crocodiles and over my head, and had to get like pulled out. Like, well, the guy. The thing is, the guy kept. I'm a huge man, uh, you know, and this guy who's like 130 pounds is trying to pull me out, and I'm like, you can't pull me. Let go of my hand so I could re- get myself out of here. So he's like trying to pull me, and I'm like, let go. And then I'm like, binoculars first. So I hand him my binoculars, <laughs> you know. And uh, what kind was, of binoculars did you have? Then? These at the time, these were Bruntons. They're sort of like $1,400 binoculars. They're really good ones. Okay. Um, and uh, it was, I mean, it was hilarious. It was a good time. Uh, so. Yeah, there's a couple of anecdotes there. Very good anecdotes. I like anecdotes and accolades. It's kind of how I roll. Okay, but but when I when I fell in the water, right, it was like cathartic. I like all the stress of me, like I went away and I could just I was like I was already muddy and wet and I, there, was a, there was a leech on me when I came out. Anyway, uh, stand I, by me. Yeah, but the thing is, in, in, in that part of the world, you have terrestrial leeches that are in the leaf litter anyway. So I was already had a bunch of leeches on me, but these were. You know, but I, but I felt I was like such a release. I I could just enjoy the the walk. You know, I was like so much more, and it was it was a nice feeling. You know, kind of like oh, like whatever. I'm muddy, and I'm having a good time. You know, and it was it was lovely. And uh, we raised money. My World Series of Birding team um, raised money for that. Um, we, we called ourselves Team Bristlehead because they're born in Bristlehead, um, and then a bird, and we and we raised money for that. Um, of course. Nature Center uh, for the World Series of Birding. And, yeah, it was awesome. Oh, we're good. That's, I think the episode we got to do is World Series of Birding. Are there urban-specific teams? No, but I mean, so much of what we do, I mean... Can it's, it be like a fight companion type podcast? Yes. But, like, we're huge Joe Rogan fans, by the way. Oh, uh, yes. Yes, we need to talk to Joe Rogan. He has some really kind of messed up views on, like, hunting predators... And like, and I love him to death. I think he needs to, um, like, I, I always have a man cross on Joe Rogan. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, we're actually drinking liquor because it was mentioned on the Joe Rogan podcast right now. Um, Not that you started drinking scotch recently. No, no, no. But this particular brand was mentioned on on the podcast. Um, but yeah, we'd like to, uh, I don't want to, I'm not trying to get myself on his podcast because I'm not in the expert that he needs. I just think that he needs to have... He kind of like, he just keeps, ha- I mean, I'm a hunter, uh, you know, whatever, don't get me wrong, but like, he keeps having all these like, um, hunting TV show guys and on there and talking about predators and whatnot. And like, he has his ideas like predators are like really dangerous to people, like we shouldn't have them around our, their cities and, you know, or they, you know, we need to control wolves and in mountain lions. And I just think that he's got some kind of, he kind of has some views. I think he kind of, he kind of likes. Um, how do I how do I articulate this? Convenient like, views. Yeah, or he like reaffirms what he already thinks to go along with his you know preconceived notions. You know to support his hobby, and I just think that like because he's you know he he's a fan of science and and discourse. I think he should have some wildlife biologist on like some real experts and like challenge his views on it. You know a little bit. Do you have any uh, wildlife anecdotes? Any more that you've thought of? That wildlife anecdotes? From, uh, <clears throat> other, from Well, hey, Philadelphia or other cities. Oh, let's see. Um, Where do you live in Philadelphia? I live in Fishtown. What do you see around your place in Fishtown? Uh, I see pigeons. I see raccoons. I see 
Um, and let's put it this way. Philly is an unbelievably urban dense city. It's as it's dense as and urban. Fishtown's pretty damn dense. Yeah, it's yeah. about... It's, it, for Philly, for residential neighborhood, Fishtown is as, as, as urban as dense as Philly gets, and Philly is more urban and more dense than any other city other than New York City. In the United States. And let's say it's on par with New York City, which is smaller. Yeah, yeah so Fishtown's like... Wrote like Row houses, block to yeah. block row houses. And row houses don't even have, like, there's the row houses without the little tiny patch of dirt in the front. Yeah. Or, or in the A little back. garden in the back. A little garden in the back. Uh, lots of squirrels, lots of possums, lots of, um, you know, small birds like little, you know, starlings and house sparrow type things. Um, occasional, uh, I mean, not being an avid bird watcher, I hear the occasional shriek of something that sounds like a sort of interesting bird, and then I'll see carcasses of things in the park nearby. Um, stray cats and dogs, obviously. Our neighbor has a pig. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I mean, you see have night hawks nesting on roofs there. You know, yeah. there's, you know, there, there's some. Do the raccoons ever mess with your stuff? Uh, I get the possums a little bit, squirrels for sure. Feral cats are probably the worst of them in terms of messing with my trash and stuff. Um, mice, you know, typical, typical city stuff. Feral cats like crapping in your garden and you like flower pots and stuff probably. Yeah, some of that. Um, yeah, but it's pretty, I mean, it's, I would think it's pretty mild. You know, not unlike stargazing, it's pretty neutered in the city. Uh, not, yeah. not that it's, you know what I mean. Yeah, 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 but it is, it, it is, but it's still, like, <coughs> I just find it, this is part of what I like <coughs> about what we talk about in the podcast, is that even in a place where you say, like, yeah, it is, you're right. Well, let me put it to, I, it I see the world as I am, yeah. and I'm not open. You know, I, I, I don't look as, I'm sure I look more frequently than a lot of people do. I'm sure you do, um, yeah. But, and, you know, and, and look, you know, because I know places to look. If I hear a noise, I will look. If I, you know, if I'm walking, I look up and look for perched things. Um, I will say this about Fishtown. If I was to choose a neighborhood, when I think of places to live in Philly and observe wildlife, Fishtown might be the last on my list. <laughs> yeah. say, the river's yeah. not that far. It's good people watching. You got the that's Delaware right there. I'm yeah. saying, even in the last place you'd look in Philly, yeah, we've got um, you just li- you just rattled off multiple native species mm-hmm. that live around you without anyone actively supporting them. They're certainly yeah. passively supporting them. I mean, they're, they're yeah. They're I mean, I've been up, I heard goldfinches and, and the, the bird, the, the, the trees that we plant, blue jays, and I think yeah, yeah, there. You know, sure. I've seen you know the occasional things like that. And so, I mean, I think it's it's still a special thing that you've got um, that you that you sort of that in a, a so thoroughly um, urban anthropogenic like landscape as Fishtown, you still got a lot of like non-human stuff living around you. It's like, yeah. and they're just part of the part of the landscape, part exactly. of the biosphere, or whatever. They're part yeah. of your community in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and 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 also you know you're talking about the feral cats and the rats and the mice. Um, and the pigeons and sort of the other feral stuff, but it's still like it's part of the environment. It's it's its own weird little ecosystem there. Yeah. All right. So for conclusion, we want to remind everybody to uh, like us on iTunes, Stitcher, share the hell out of us um, to let other people know about how awesome this podcast is. Thank you very much. Send us an email 
at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Again, urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at herbwildlifecast. Find us on Facebook. Uh, let us know what you think of the podcast. Um, rate us and like us again on all your platforms. Um, so that kind of reminds me of something where I feel like I don't do that enough in the podcast fanatic. So how can I ask people to do that when I mean I definitely do it sometime for podcasts but I'm a podcast fanatic and I don't do it enough for the podcasts I like so I want to be I'll, I'll like a few podcasts this week being that we are we have this platform be generous about it and, and sort of model the behavior we want to see should we give a shout a couple shout outs to podcasts we really like ooh um, we still love In Defense of Plants yeah I love In Defense of Plants perhaps my favorite podcast is Monster Talk uh, is, I believe it's in the Skeptic Society, and it's a uh, um, so they they talk about um, it's a cryptozoology, but from a skeptical point of view. I would hope so. Right. So I mean, it's not like some weird conspiracy theory stuff. Although you really... do a fun fantasy fiction kind of thing with like very sincere. I don't know. I do really like uh, the Eyes on Conservation podcast. It's a good one. Um, and I really like Astronomy Cast. That's one I listen to a lot. And of course, you know, Bird Calls Radio and um, This Birding Life when they ever actually put episodes out, which is very rare. And of course, you know, the greats like Stuff You Should Know and uh, 99% Invisible. But I'll be honest, I do listen to a lot of Game of Thrones and Walking Dead podcasts from Bold Move. Those guys are awesome. I also you like the Nerdette and... Um, uh... The Nerdette Game of Thrones recap? Uh, I need to listen to that. I am a big fan of uh, the UFC, believe it or not. You don't say. And uh, I love the MMA Hour with Ariel Hawani. I'm a huge fan of Luke Thomas's podcasts. I am a big fan of the MMA Beat, which also includes you know um, Luke Thomas and Ariel Hawani. I'm a big fan of Sure Dog Radio. Anything T.J. DeSantis produces, I listen to. He's great. And we might clip this down a little bit. Yeah, so I'm just saying, you know, we here's a shout out to some of our podcasts that we've okay. to a lot. I, and I, I, I've been getting into um, some of the Vox connected podcasts. Um, the Weeds, uh, which is a policy, not at all nature, but policy, public policy heavy podcast. Um, my only my only educational background is in social sciences and public policy, so there you go. Uh, and Ezra Klein podcast. You guys know who Ezra Klein is? No. Wonk blog over at Washington Post and started Vox. Um, he mentioned Mild Project, the PB&J campaign, um, in an interview, which I'm wearing the shirt right now. So I was pretty psyched about that. In any case, um, uh, I listen to that a lot. I, uh, I, I like Living on Earth. I mean, it's a public radio show, but I listen to that as a podcast. Um, it has me inspired someday when I have time for another podcast. My next podcast should be um, the Radical Environmentalist Hour. Yeah. Like, I think environmental stuff is nice, but, like, I feel like the environmentalists that I hear in mainstream media are all trying to be too nice. And, like, I want to I want edgier environmental, like, presentation. Like, yeah. Like, what's the, uh, the... Why am I blanking on the dude's name? The one who wrote um, Monkey Wrenching. Um, David Abbey. 
Edward Abbey's introduction to um, to no, he wrote Monkey Wrench Gang, but Monkey Wrenching, right? Dave he wrote, um, he wrote no, but he wrote the intro to Foreman's Monkey Wrenching book. Yeah, um, and it is it is like a short manifesto of of environmentalism that I think is like hmm. a harder core environmentalism than we're used to, where it's sort of like saying. Like environmentalists, like are these days generally pretty nice and play within the lines and stuff. I mean, some of them get more protesty around the Keystone Pipeline and that kind of thing. I'll give them that. Um, but uh, or or trying to stop up that port in Portland, I think, when they were trying to keep the shipping, the, yeah, uh, the drilling platforms are coming out. Um, but they, I think they, the his little his little piece right there is basically saying like if someone is destroying your house. You don't have to stick to totally passive means to stop them from destroying your house. And when people destroy the environment, we should not feel so bound to being polite and and lawful. Like there's a, certainly a role for civil disobedience and a role for um, much more confrontational stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's. I'm not saying that. I think there's. You need a full range of approaches in an advocacy effort. Um, and I think that needs to be weighted higher in the environmental advocacy effort. I agree. And for me, my, I mean, the world is being destroyed. And in a way, this, all these actions are self-defense, if you think about it. But me, the way I look at it is my console, you know, the way I justify myself not taking these more direct actions is I'm in a position to do a lot of good with my job, and I'm not. Yeah, I'm not blaming us for not. Doing I know, stuff but like, man, like, I do think about it. I'm like, if the world, if the world goes the way I think it is, are we complicit in not trying harder? Well, we also used our platform to give a shout out. Right on. For so many people that I know that have an overlap with wildlife and mixed martial arts.